You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today, we're welcoming back onto the program Alan Mikhail, professor of history at Yale University. Professor Mikhail, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, for our listeners who've been following the podcast for many years, uh, Professor Mikhail was one of our uh, first guests uh, to come on and talk about an actual published book. A lot of our earlier episodes were actually graduate students uh, talking about this and that that they had read. And uh, in our second year of operations, we went to the interview format with scholars. Uh, and Professor Mikhail, along with many other scholars who were in Turkey uh, that summer, really helped develop the program. Uh, in a new way. So we're very happy to have him back now to talk about uh, the subject of Ottoman Iceland, which is uh, a first for us. We've never had an episode about the connections between the Ottoman Empire and Iceland, and I'm looking forward to discussing that. Uh, a little background on Professor Alan Mikhail. He's got two monographs out, uh, Nature and Empire in Ottoman Egypt. Uh, that's a recipient of the Roger Owen Book Prize from the Middle East Studies Association of North America. And he's also got a book, a more recent book, The Animal in Ottoman Egypt. So really dabbling in a number of uh, fields related to uh, the environmental history of the Ottoman Empire and Egypt in particular. Uh, today's discussion uh, is a bit more micro. It's a discussion of some research published in the journal Environmental History uh, about the connections between a volcanic explosion in Iceland uh, and late 18th century Egypt. So, Professor Mikhail, before we talk about how climate connects Iceland to Egypt during the 18th century, uh, can you set up the story of uh, these volcanic explosions that occurred uh, in, uh, in Iceland uh, in, in 1783 uh, and their larger um, situation within the history of global climate? Thanks, Chris. The Okay, so Iceland is no stranger to um, volcanoes, obviously, the land of fire yeah. and ice. And as you said in the introduction, you know, I'm a historian of uh, the Ottoman Empire and specifically Egypt, uh, more specifically often in the 18th century. And so in working on, on, on Egypt and issues of um, environmental history, um, ecology, resource management, human-animal relations... I, um, you know, I would I would search out for uh, work in uh, more scientific sort of venues mm -hmm. um, relating to Egypt in this period, um, and there's not a lot, but there's some, which I think is important for um, um, you know those of us interested in environment, ecology, and the Ottoman Empire to realize that there mm -hmm. is actually a lot of scientific work uh, that we can use in our scholarship. Um, you know, Sam White's book uses um, a lot of this to great effect. Yeah. Um, for example, so. Um, so I kept running up um, against this story of um, this volcano in Iceland. The name of the volcano is Lackey. Mm -hmm. So at the very beginning, we need to say that Lackey is not... Um, I, we're going to call it a volcano, and I call it a volcano in the article, but um, it's really a set of um, explosion sites um, along a fissure mm -hmm. in 
um, in Iceland, and I have a map okay. of the fissure. Um, and so I think there are seven or eight explosion sites at various points um, during um, this episode. So, so beginning in June of 1783, uh, various points along this fissure begin exploding. Mm-hmm. The, uh, so there are various explosions uh, over the course of eight months. The last one is in February of 1784. So over the course of this one event, more um, sulfur dioxide um, was released um, than any other uh, volcano in recorded history except for one. Wow. So it's, it's one of the largest recorded uh, uh, volcanic events, I That's guess. That's right. So, so there are various ways of measuring the size mm-hmm. of volcanic um, eruptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in terms of various measures, um, sulfur dioxide being the main one, uh, Lackey was one of the biggest, was the second mm-hmm. largest in, in recorded history. It's also uh, the largest in terms of uh, the altitude to which uh, the tephra and the dust, so the actual material that was released, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the physical material, um, it's, the, it's, it's the largest in terms of the altitude that that material was released into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think it's something like 1,400 kilometers or something like that. So there's a massive explosion. And, and really the first place affected by it is, of course, Iceland, right? Right. So the first place, um, effect, so so the effects also we have to sort of disaggregate a little bit. So, the, so obviously the first place that it affects and the place that it affects most directly and deeply is Iceland. This is like a cataclysmic event right. in so the history of Iceland. A fifth Iceland. of the population of Iceland dies as a result of this um, explosion. So um, most of the death does not come from sort of lava flows, mm-hmm. right? It comes from disease outbreaks afterwards, okay? It comes from famine. Um, it be- comes from loss of agricultural land, also loss of livestock. So something like, I have these numbers in the article, something like 75% of the sheep on Iceland die, um, 80% of the cows, mm-hmm. something like that. So 20% of the human population dies as a result of um, of, of this ex- set of explosions in Iceland over the course of the next five years. It also leads to uh, massive internal migration within Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, you know, if we think sort of in a context um, that, you know, many of us are living at the moment, um, these kind of massive cataclysmic um, ecological events often lead to massive death. Mm-hmm. and often lead to massive migrations. So this is no different. I mean, Iceland is in some ways unique because it's bounded as an island. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's very little evidence, as far as I've seen, of, of migration out of Iceland. But within mm. the island itself, there was um, massive migration. So the first effects were the visible um, effects of this ash cloud. Mm. Okay. So the ash cloud, um, and it's very, it's it's, you know, th- this episode is great because we have um, various, I mean, it's not great, obviously, but we have for the historian, yeah. because we have um, these eyewitness accounts of seeing the ash cloud, okay? Mm-hmm. In different parts of the world, you mean, so... Exactly, right. So we have it in Iceland, right? And then we have it, you know, in Ireland, then in, uh, you know, the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benjamin Franklin sees it in Philadelphia, I think, really? somewhere in, in um, the northeast of the United States, what is today the United States? And, and so we have journal entries, we have weather logs, we have, uh, you know, just newspapers that mm-hmm. say there was this very strange cloud and sometimes odor hanging over, you know, the Netherlands, Norway, France, Italy. Um, and so we have various eyewitness accounts 
mm-hmm. of the the ash cloud. Now, I want to be very specific that this is the visible ash cloud. Okay, we have we have um, accounts of this stretching from North America to the furthest afield that I found was in the Altai Mountains in Central Asia. Oh wow! So in the article that I produced, this map of all um, of all of these different eyewitness accounts from 1783 through 1785. Um, and give the kind of uh, and sort of connect the dots of of how big this ash cloud the, again the visible ash cloud was directly after the explosions and presumably this ash cloud is moving over the course of right. months is it because that there's sustained multiple explosions that it creates such like an enduring yes. uh, uh, climatic effect in that regard or in, right. the, in the atmosphere so that's also important in thinking about this volcano. Uh, vis-a-vis other volcanic explosions mm-hmm. is is exactly as you said the sustained release of sulfur dioxide tephra okay. ash etc into the air um, maintains a high concentration of sulfur dioxide for the most part but other things in the atmosphere mm-hmm. um, and of course once they get up into the atmosphere all sorts of things happen um, so the the jet stream, for example, and Iceland again is sort of conveniently located for these things. Yeah, um, it gets up into the uh, jet stream and is then spread, you know, as far as Central Asia mm-hmm. as, as as we can tell. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here, speaking with Professor Alan Mikhail about his article entitled entitled Ottoman Iceland. That's about a, a connection between a volcanic eruption in Iceland uh, and uh, the Middle East. So, Professor Mikhail, you make an interesting point in the introduction to the article about uh, the way we tend to study climatic events. The climatic events are usually studied on a massive scale, sometimes uh, studying change over a very long period of time. Uh, Sam White in, in Climate of Rebellion does that very effectively uh, for the Ottoman case when looking at the, the Little Ice Age, of course, a very um, long and almost imperceptible on the annual level a climatic event that had major historical consequences. Uh, what you make the argument for with the with the Leckie uh, explosions is is another way of studying natural events or climatic events and their impact on uh, human history, which is uh, um, I guess through a, a more micro approach uh, and and by looking at specific direct connections between two places rather than always seeing things as uh, completely global. So maybe you could uh, flesh that out a little more. Obviously, you've just described that many places in the world are affected by Leckie. Um, but what do you see as the particular value of honing in on the connection between your region of expertise, Egypt, uh, and Iceland at this time? Okay, so that's a great question. So um, I, I guess I'll answer this in a couple ways. One is, in terms of the historiography mm-hmm. of Lackey itself, mm-hmm. it, there's been um, a lot of work done on its impacts in Western Europe mm-hmm. and in North America. Yeah. Okay. We historians of the Middle East have begun to think about environmental history in a real way, and and as a kind of subset of that, to think about the history of climate and climate mm-hmm. change. So Sam White's book obviously looms very large here um, mm-hmm. in terms of Ottoman history. Um, Dick Bullitt, uh, Richard W. Bullitt, has an excellent book on uh, climate change and medieval Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been some other work re- more recently that's been done on the medieval period in the Mediterranean um, as, with specific reference to the Eastern Mediterranean and not mm-hmm. only, you know, uh, the southern coast of Europe or something like that. 
So, you know, I, in, in this article, I'm obviously using all of this work. Um, and, then, and then also I should say that, you know, this is in the larger context of uh, the climate crisis today, which has impacted the historiography of uh, multiple fields in that historians have now turned their attention to um, other historical examples of climate change. Um, and the Little Ice Age in the early modern period, that was a global phenomenon of climate mm-hmm. change um, that Sam White uses, um, uh, you know, shows its impacts in the Ottoman Empire yeah. um, very well, um, is, is, is um, you know, a, a major area of scholarship now. Jeffrey Parker's new massive book on um, the Little Ice Age um, and, and global history is sort of the, the par- most paradigmatic recent example of this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this is really important and really, really um, great and is pushing uh, multiple fields in multiple directions. So this, what I wanted to do with this article is simply point to, a, as you say, a very specific mm-hmm. um, example of um, a temporary instance of climate change um, and a specific effect that it had. Okay. Okay. So as you said, it impacts all of these places around, around the world. The micro aspects of, of this event, why are they important? And why is it important to think about specific causes and specific yeah. effects in the history of climate? Because as you say, you know, we think about um, climate change today as a very sort of abstract notion. And that yeah. abstraction is what allows you know, certain political hues to question that it e- is even happening. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Little Ice Age, you know, no peasant in, you know, rural Germany or rural Lebanon um, said, oh, my crops failed this year because the Little Ice Age is right. going on at the moment. Um, and, and and likewise, no one in Egypt in 1783 or 84 knew that a volcano had exploded in Iceland and wasn't affecting mm-hmm. uh, the Nile, but it, it nevertheless was. Okay, so... In, 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 in thinking about the history of climate change, the, the, the example of Lackey and its specific effects on Egypt struck me as a perfect way of trying to, to kind of calm down out of the clouds, if you like, mm-hmm. on the ground to examine a very specific cause. So the volcano is, you know, a, a deus ex machina kind of event, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, but nevertheless, it had these very specific um, climate impacts mm-hmm. at, on very specific places, and in very particular ways. So by examining that very specific cause and effect, it could allow us to think about the historiography of climate change in a different way. Instead of thinking about it only as as abstraction mm-hmm. with very specific um, effects. We usually talk about yeah. the specific effects, but we never really talk about specific causes. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and um, Lackey is a very specific cause yeah. um, with, with, again, multiple effects in multiple places. I'm, I'm interested in one set of effects in one particular place. Um, but in thinking about things like the responsibility for the climate crisis today, yeah. for example, mm-hmm. or connecting various places that we don't necessarily think are connected instead of just talking about a kind of vague and undifferentiated global history. Um, This was a a kind of perfect opportunity to kind of uh, try to wrestle climate change down, Mm -hmm. down um, on the ground. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, in that regard, environmental history plays a really important role uh, in thinking about climate crisis today, because, you know, on one hand, as you said, uh, we have to understand that climate change actually has specific localized effects in specific 
places, not this amorphous thing that's happening everywhere, but it affects different regions differently for a variety of, of reasons. And again, as you said, arises from specific, uh, indeed multiple uh, sites, but nonetheless specific sites that are located in specific geographic regions. Of mm-hmm. course, we can't blame Iceland uh, for what happened to Egypt that you're about to tell us, uh, but certainly uh, that lesson uh can be applicable to the 21st century when thinking about anthropogenic uh, climate change. So maybe we should move into the Egypt part of our discussion and talk about what happened to Egypt as a result of the Lekki eruptions. We don't have any, um, as I was talking about before, we have um, these eyewitness accounts of the ash cloud. Yeah. Okay. In 1783 and 84. Um, As far as I was able to find or not find, as the case may be. There's no eyewitness account from Egypt that says we saw an ash cloud in 1783 mm-hmm. or 84, or there were strange things in the atmosphere or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nevertheless, um, Lackey did have uh, you know very direct impacts on Egypt, and that is through the kind of um, second-order um, effects of the volcanic explosion, and that has to do with the sulfur, the amount of sulfur dioxide that is released. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, as I said, the second largest amount in recorded history. Um, I think it's. I think the number is 122 megatons of sulfur dioxide. Yeah. This is all again reconstruction from historical climatological um, data. So once the sulfur dioxide is released into the atmosphere, it gets in the polar jet stream, and then it also gets aerosolized with the moisture in the atmosphere, which allows it then to be spread even further afield. Mm-hmm. As I said at the very beginning, I was reading the scientific literature, trying to figure out some stuff out about Egypt. Um, and there is a body of work uh, that talks about the effects of this sulfur dioxide and the sulfur dioxide aerosol on the monsoons mm-hmm. for various complicated scientific uh, reasons. Um, this amount of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere leads to a weaker monsoon. Mm-hmm. So could you explain the relationship between the monsoons, which of course are winds in the Indian Ocean, uh, and their uh, implications for Egypt? So the heavy rains that, that fall over, uh, uh, over South Asia and then move west over the Indian Ocean are what feed the Nile. Okay, So uh, the yearly rains in uh, uh, the early summer mm-hmm. in the Ethiopian highlands are the ultimate uh, source yes. of, uh, of the Nile's flood, which reaches Egypt, um, different parts of Egypt, between June and August um, every, every year. So a weakened monsoon, due to uh, the sulfur dioxide that Lackey released, leads to lower floods in Egypt, mm-hmm. um, a lower flow of the Nile. So indeed, in the summer of 1783, Lackey explodes in June, which is, again, sort of just in time Mm -hmm. for uh, the flood season in Egypt. 1783 is the lowest flood of the entire 18th century. Mm -hmm. And this is recorded in Egyptian sources. That's right. So we have, yeah, we have flood records uh, from various um, historians for Mm -hmm. a long time in Egypt, right? I mean, going back millennia. Um, So um, 1783 is the lowest flood of the entire 18th century. 1784 is the third lowest flood. Mm of the entire 18th century. Um, Okay, so the ecology of the river is obviously very complicated, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And and throughout this story, I'm very careful in the article, and I want to be very careful now, not to tell a monocausal story, okay? Um, 
not everything that happened in Egypt, including the, the lower flood, can be, quote unquote, blamed mm-hmm. on Lackey. Nevertheless, it is a, a, a hugely important factor in mm-hmm. telling the history of Egypt in this period. And I, it is not a coincidence that 1783 and 84 are the first and the third lowest floods of the 18th century. And the historical climatological data is what allows me to make that connection. So I'm very much relying here on on that work mm-hmm. in, um, you know, tying uh, the sulfur dioxide from Lackey to the Nile. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Prof- Professor Alan Mikhail about his uh, new article in environmental history entitled Ottoman Iceland. Uh, for those who want to find out more about the topic or check out the other uh, publications of Professor Mikhail, we have a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, which is also a great place to check out other episodes related to today's topic and many other topics in the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East. So, Professor Mikhail, you've set up the climatological um, science uh, that that uh, substantiates this connection between uh, the volcanic eruptions in Iceland and um, uh, the sort of ecology uh, of Egypt. Now let's delve a little deeper into which sort of your broader expertise, which is um, uh, agrarian Egypt during the, the 18th century. You said that uh, the Lekki explosion re- results in um, lower floods uh, in the Nile, uh, um, probably our, in our audience is a wide range of knowledge about Egypt. Some people might say, well, lower floods, less floods sound like a good thing. So, uh, but we have the sense that this is not a good thing for Egypt. So maybe you could explain what the implications of radically lower floods would be within the uh, agrarian uh, scene in Egypt during the late 18th century. Okay. Uh, thank you for that uh, question, Chris. So, Right. In lots of places, uh, uh, you know, a large flood is a bad thing. And Egypt is a good thing. Egypt is, forgive the trite expressions, you know, a desert with a river running through it, the gift of the Nile, any any of these sort of platitudes that you mm-hmm. like. And all of that is true. So uh, the specific case of, 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 of Egypt, because the Nile obviously runs through um, many places other than Egypt also, um, in Egypt, there's a system of basin irrigation, mm-hmm. whereby uh, water from the flood is channeled into mm-hmm. various basins. Um, again, very complicated, various sets of canals, um, other sort of catchment areas um, in which the water can then be channeled to fields very far a field uh, mm-hmm. from the river, yeah. um, and then also um, can be stored to be used later on. Um, and so you actually have two planting seasons um, in Egypt, the Egyptian Delta um, on the Mediterranean, right? Um, the Nile flows to the north. The, uh, the Delta is the, is the place in which, you know, this, this, uh, this uh, sort of flourishes, this system mm-hmm. of basin irrigation. Um, and, and it's part of the reason that we have um, a Delta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, um, a, a reduction and, and the numbers that we have um, from this period, 83, 84, 85, um, are that the, the Nile was reduced by as much as a fifth mm. in, these, in these flood seasons. So um, a, a reduction of a fifth of the amount of water um, that people rely on for food production. And it's mm-hmm. not just people in Egypt, people throughout the Mediterranean, Istanbul, North Africa, etc. Um, a reduction of a fifth of the Nile's waters 
um, which might not necessarily translate into a reduction of a, uh, a reduction of a fifth in the amount of food produced, but nevertheless is going to is going to reduce um, levels of food production um, is going to have massive impacts. Sure. You know, um, at, at various points in the late 18th century, as much as a quarter of Istanbul's grain comes from from Egypt. Oh, wow. So, um, just to give you a sense of the scale that we're talking about, um, the Hejaz, right, uh, the the western coast of what is today Saudi Arabia, um, gets a, a huge percentage of its food from mm-hmm. Egypt, also. So, a reduction of the Nile's waters will have these massive impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and and you know um, less food production also leads to issues of uh, uh, reductions in health for mm-hmm. the population of Egypt. So as I said at the very very beginning, you know this is the period that I work on, the end of the 18th century. Um, and in doing that work, and you know, I'm not the only person who works on this period of Egyptian history, but um, it's very clear that this is a really tough period for yeah. people in Egypt. Especially in the countryside. I mean, this is the period of transformations uh, in, in labor regimes and in, in land tenure um, and all of these things. And so while we've been talking in the general about uh, reduction in food supply and all of this, maybe we can talk more specifically about the chain of um, impacts that an agrarian crisis uh, could have. Um, and maybe you could flesh out even further what uh, agriculture and agrarian life looks like in the Egyptian countryside during this time. Right. So you're, you're absolutely right that the end of the 18th century, so let's say from 1750 on, mm-hmm. is a period in which the countryside is changing in, in, in um, various important ways that I think still affect Egypt today. So I want to understand this dialectical relationship between this ecological story mm-hmm. of climate, of flood, of um, animal labor, for example, and, and other things, the ecology of the Nile, mm-hmm. and what's happening in terms of the economic um, sphere with the increase in um, the number and the size of these landed estates that are owned by families for the mm-hmm. most part. So large familial units who are becoming um, rapacious landowners in this mm-hmm. Okay, just to summarize it. Um, they are seizing tracts of land that used to be kind of uh, small farms. Um, They are seizing labor, both human and animal labor, to work on these farms. And they're beginning to produce for a market, right? So this is a story of the commercialization of um, um, a subsistence agricultural economy, if if Mm -hmm. you like. But it happens in very particular ways in Egypt. Um, And lots of these these guys, Mm -hmm. right, the leaders of these kind of familial units, um, begin... um, entering into the political sphere in multiple kinds of ways, which is mm-hmm. not a surprise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the connection between um, economic history and political history. And um, a lot of these landowners become the multesms of, mm-hmm. of areas, um, the tax farmers. Um, some of them uh, become provincial governors, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it is the case that um, the uh, very important provincial governors at the end of the um, 18th century in the 1770s. So Ali Bey al-Kabir and Mohammed Bey Abu Dahab, okay, these are two Ottoman-appointed provincial governors who start collecting land into enormous estates, mm. okay, start cutting deals with these other kind of uh, landholders, start raising small armies, right, start producing more and more goods to be sold on the market, to produce cash for themselves. And they lead a rebellion against the Ottoman Empire, pushing into greater Syria, 
And this is something, you know, I, I in, in this article and in other of my work, have talked about this as a kind of dress rehearsal for what uh, Mehmed Ali is going to do mm, okay. um, um, later on in the first half of the 18th century. So, uh, sorry, in the first half of the 19th century. He is in some ways the most successful of these guys mm-hmm. um, and succeeds in making all of Egypt his tax farm, if you like, yeah. right? Um, up until the 1950s, his family is ruling in Egypt. So, so w- when I talk about um, you know w- w- what happened in Egypt at the end of the 18th century, still being with us in some ways, this is this is what I what I mean. So, um, okay, so that's that's what's going on in terms of the economic and the political realm. And I think um, this ecological crisis, if you like, crisis might be too strong a term, but this ecological stress that is occurring at the end of the 18th century, of which Lackey is only one part. Okay, so we have plague outbreaks. Um, all throughout the 1780s and the 1790s in Egypt that, again, have a complicated relationship with flood and food production and things. All of these, th- all of the, the, this economic, uh, sorry, this ecological stress taken together gives, gives these guys opportunities mm-hmm. to claim more resources for themselves. Because in a moment of crisis, it's those with resources who are able to, one, survive the crisis and then take advantage of the weakness in society that is produced because of the crisis. So how do you see this playing out uh, in the case of Lecky in those few years? Like, what, are the, what is the best evidence we have of the um, you know, immediate impacts and reactions of people on the ground to this, uh, these low floods? In 1783 um, and 84 and 85, after the floods, sorry, after the, the reduced floods because of, of, of Lackey, uh, a series of these people that I've been mentioning, mm-hmm. um, these kind of provincial elites, start seizing more and more land and okay. withholding more and more grain from the Ottoman Empire. There is all-out rebellion going on in uh, in Egypt in this period. Okay, yeah. we have um, you know fields that um, have not been cultivated because the peasants who used to cultivate them have now been taken elsewhere um, to mm-hmm. work on other fields. You know, we have the situation of rebellion. The empire is very aware of this, right? So there's a very famous um, event, uh, the uh, dispatch of Ghazi Hassan Pasha to mm-hmm. Egypt in 1786, okay? Mm-hmm. To get a hold of this chaos and mayhem that has been going on in Egypt uh, for a few years before Lackey, but Lackey, you know, sort of adds to this process that is, that is continuing. And um, he, his job is to go to Egypt and to sort of reimpose, uh, you know, Ottoman central control on this province that has fallen into mm-hmm. chaos. And he largely succeeds. He drives these, uh, these kind of rebellious emirs and things into the south, into hiding, um, kind of reestablishes the tax regime and these sorts of things, but is quickly, uh, quickly leaves Egypt to join, um, you know, the Ottoman, Ottoman wars against Russia. That's fine. So I want to say... <laughs> and I think it's right that um, Lackey, in some ways, is 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 the cause of Ghazi Hassan Pasha coming to Egypt. Hmm. Okay, um, he um, is sent to try to get control of this place that has fallen um, fallen um, in in terms of the Ottoman Empire on hard times. So the question then becomes, you know, had Lackey not occurred, not erupted. Right. Yeah. As I said, it is this deuce ex machina kind of event. Had it not happened, would Ghazi Hassan Pasha have, you know, maybe not in 1786, but in another year, still gone to Egypt? Wouldn't Egypt still yeah. have been going down this path of, um, of the creation of these large landed estates, um, you know, these, these rapacious emirs, 
um, the consolidation of property in a few hands, et cetera, et cetera. Wouldn't that process have continued? So, you know, that's a counterfactual question, but I'm happy to entertain it. Um, so uh, I think that that it is the case that Egypt would have gone down this path, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it would have gone, um, um, you know, through a different set of mechanisms and gone down a different road, right? I'm interested in telling the story of what actually happened, not what might have happened had sure. what happened not happened. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so maybe I can ask a, a different question then. I mean, I mean, I think uh, most historians of Egypt during the period would agree that the processes uh, you're talking about are actually unfolding on a, on a longer time scale. And mm -hmm. really, you do have the sense of inevitability, and it's not like Egypt's the only place in the world that experiences sure. such an event during this time. So I think maybe, you know, some of the lessons that we can take out of this lecky uh, explosion uh, case study uh, are not so much um, that, you know, volcanoes are the cause of uh, Egypt's uh, land distribution problems per se, but rather uh, they allow a form of, um, or they allow a way of, of looking at the mechanisms uh, by which uh, these processes unfold because they're accelerated in this time of crisis. Um, I think that's what you're uh, trying to get at. Yeah, no, that's right, and and it's also that there's a, a you know a causal chain of events mm -hmm. that occurs in a certain sequence that we have to understand. Yeah, and, and 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 again, I think you know what happened in Egypt at the end of the 18th century and its impacts would have continued to happen had Lackey not exploded, but but this was a major factor in understanding the ecological crisis right. that was formative of all these other things um, in Egypt in the 1780s. Um, in the 1790s. I mean, I often think about it in this way. So, uh, you know, if we think about something like Katrina in mm -hmm. New Orleans. Before Katrina, there was racial disparity yeah. in New Orleans, right? There was uh, segregation in terms of housing, yeah. right? There were all of these things. Um, it is the case, though, that after Katrina, the disparities in all of these sort mm -hmm. of social and economic factors were made all the starker, Yeah. Right. It was a moment that allowed certain things to make a kind of leap. And those are things that were in play already mm -hmm. and that likely would have continued marching on. But this one moment of, of crisis sort of um, allowed it to ramp up in terms mm -hmm. of intensity um, and to take a slightly different path. Mm -hmm. And so I think Lackey is, is a similar sort of moment right. in thinking about the history of Egypt in this case in that it accelerated processes that were already in play mm -hmm. and put them perhaps on a slightly different path than they would have mm -hmm. taken had Lackey not occurred. I yep. still think probably the end result would have been the same, mm -hmm. but the um, um, the kind of path dependency in which those events occurred would have been vastly different. Mm -hmm. I think, I think and, and you know, historians who write about famine, for example, uh, more of in, in the long durée, uh, make similar points that the famines uh, are caused by a variety of factors. But in the time of famine, you can actually see how in a lot of cases, the, the economic processes that are feeding famine uh, in the long run actually accelerate. If you look at famine, I don't know, during the First World War or extraordinary times, um, that they actually feed into the uh, unequal distributions uh, of resources and wealth that kind of uh, lead to more long-term uh, crises that, that may have, as we say, uh, natural causes, whether El Nino cycles or in the case of a volcanic explosion, or may have other causes as well.
Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Professor Alan Mikhail again. To wrap up the interview, uh, uh, Professor Mikhail, I want to ask you one last question, which is actually about the title of the article, uh, Ottoman Iceland. Uh, of course, Iceland is not controlled by the Ottoman Empire, but you're making a claim for an Ottoman connection uh, with Iceland that you've substantiated uh, painstakingly through this uh, uh, volcanic, the study of, of a volcanic event. I personally like the idea of, of thinking about these these far off connections, but what is the the contribution you're trying to make here by uh, uh, putting forth this notion of an Ottoman Iceland or the connections between Ottoman Empire and Iceland? I mean, so just to begin with the title, you know, I want you know, it's a title, so I wanted it to be arresting first of yeah. all, and also to sort of pose a question in um, a reader's mind of, wait a minute, um, what does this mean? The environmental history of the Middle East um, and of the Ottoman Empire has been one of the ways in the past, I don't know, decade for historians of the Middle East to do global history in a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so other pe- other historians have, have done this in, in different sorts of ways, whether it's, I don't know, looking at intellectual networks between, say, mm-hmm. scholars in South Asia, uh, North Africa, um, Indonesia and the Middle East, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, whether it's looking at trade, I don't know, yep. the coffee trade, yep. um, you know, uh, silk, something like that. So there are multiple ways of doing, obviously, um, Middle Eastern history with a, with a global, um, with a global um, inflection. So in, in this case of, of this article, I wanted to kind of do something different um, to look at a very far off connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only other instance I know of of relating Iceland to the Middle East is the story of Barbary pirates. So in 1627, a group of pirates from North Africa reached Iceland um, and actually brought back a couple captives to North Africa. In any case, um, it, it, as you say, Iceland is not usually thought of as, as part of Middle Eastern history. The way historians of, of um, various Ottoman provinces usually do quote-unquote global history is to relate that province to other parts of the empire, which is a really important thing to do. Um, Something you've done in your first book. Right. Um, It's something that is difficult to do. Uh It's something that we need to do to break out of kind of uh, nationalist paradigms of doing the history of the Ottoman Empire in Uh the Arab world and in the Balkans, in North Africa as well. So, but, but, you know, I I think that's not enough, right? Uh We need to look at these connections between um, various parts of the Middle East and places much further afield because those connections exist, yeah. right? Whether it's through trade, whether yeah. it's through, um, you know, publication, right? And and um, a reading public, um, whether it's through um, the history of ideas. Um, and so this is, this is an example of a very far off connection that was nonetheless, as I hope I show in the article, constitutive of Egyptian history and Ottoman history um, in this period, a very specific um, set of effects in Egypt that had huge impacts on the Ottoman Empire that um, can only be understood by looking very, very far away. Yeah. And I think there's multiple things within Ottoman and Middle Eastern history that one could could do that sort sure. of thing for. No, I mean, it's really interesting that you use the analogy of uh, intellectual history and these types of things, because it's a similar trend, right? This connected history that we have to study 
global intellectual trends through the actual agents of transmission, for example, or through the objects themselves, through the books. Uh, your argument about uh, Lecky is actually really similar because, again, Lecky's a global event, but what happens in Egypt as a result of Lecky, as far as I understand from your article, has nothing to do with what happens in France or what happens in That's Denmark, right. but it has everything to do with what happened in Iceland. And so it's not that the Ottoman Empire is part of this global event, it's happening everywhere, but it's this event that is connected to different regions in different ways and and it's not the story of you know sort of an overarching impact but rather specific connections i really like um that distinction you make in in, in the approach to global history uh, i think doing that through climate is a really interesting and new way uh, of uh, of doing so uh, and i really appreciate you coming on the podcast and and sharing your time and energy with us today to to talk about this uh innovative uh new subject Thank you. Now, for those who are interested in learning more about the topic, we have a short bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, which is also a great place to leave your comments and questions and get in touch with and get access to our other episodes related to not only environmental history of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, but many other subjects. You can also check out our Facebook group. Uh, now over 20,000 followers on Facebook, uh, getting updates on our latest uh, content and, uh, and commenting and sharing those posts. That's all for this episode. It'll be the last time we talk about Iceland for a while, but we'll have many more episodes on many more topics coming up in the future. I want to thank you all for listening and invite you to join in next time. And until then, take care.